back in 2015, Rhonda Rousey was, was at the top of her career. At one time, she was the undefeated mixed martial arts fighter in her division. She was the highest paid athlete in her sport. She won 11 fights in the first round, all by knockout. In 2015, I didn't know this, but according to Google, she was the most searched person on the internet. ESPN named her the best female athlete ever. Two magazines had said that she was the most dominant active athlete in sports. Nielsen Entertainment uh, found that she had the same endorsement potential as the basketball star, basketball star LeBron James. I mean, she was at the height of her career, and she laid it all on the line when Rhonda Rowdy Rousey took on Holly, the preacher's daughter, home. And early in the second round, home landed a knockout blow, and everything came crashing down for Miss Rousey. She would later appear on the Ellen DeGeneres show with this shocking statement. She said, honestly, my thoughts in the medical room that night, I was sitting in the corner and was like, what am I anymore if not this? Literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one cares about me anymore without this. She used a little bit more spicy language there than what I used in this context here. But there she was. Her whole world came crashing down, and she didn't know how to handle it. Now, if you were to diagnose what was going on in this moment, what would you say was happening? I think a lot of people would say she was having an identity crisis, and that's certainly true. But I think as we open the, the wisdom of the scriptures, it would tell us that she is actually having an idolatry crisis. Or maybe more accurately, she's having an identity crisis because behind the scenes, she was having an idolatry crisis. Now, for many of us, we think of idolatry and we have flashbacks to what people in old times used to do. There's these gods from the Sumerians that they worshipped. They were just made of stone and clay. And we just write that off as being primitive. We know, we know much better. In fact, if we think about idols at all today, it's usually in the context of entertainment. A show American Idol pops up when you do an image search for idol. In fact, uh, celebrities and music groups pop up, and that's usually the context in which we use the word idol today. But what if idolatry had tools for us to understand in terms of our own life and our own dynamics at work? What if we were not to just dismiss idols as something that ancient people dealt with, or maybe that we could use kind of tongue-in-cheek to talk about celebrities today, and ask ourselves the question, do we in any way worship idols? Ligon Duncan, the chancellor at Reformed Seminary, put it like this, the whole Bible is written as a full-scale assault on idolatry. You ask this good professor, what is the Bible about? And he says, in many ways, it is all about a full-scale assault on idolatry. Austin Guinness in the book, No God But God, put it like this. Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. If that's even close to the truth, then you and I ought to want to understand this concept much more deeply. 
If we are followers of Jesus, and it's true that idolatry is a powerful tool to understand our own lives with, then let's open ourselves up to that and see what it has to say. So we're going to call our study today, Idols of the Heart, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and want to turn there, go ahead. We have it up on the screen as well, and that's how a lot of people choose to follow along. And so let's pause for just a moment and ask the Lord to, um, to do some deep work in our own hearts this day. Lord, as we broach this subject of idolatry, for many of us, this just is a foreign word. We don't even really think about it. Something people in old days used to do. We use it kind of half-heartedly to talk about stars and celebrities. But Lord, if this is a powerful tool for us to understand our own lives and the dynamics of our own hearts, would you break through our unfamiliarity with this topic and and show us what it is that, that we need to learn, what we need to understand about ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you would do that, that you would grant us insight so that we might live with more integrity before you, that we might be able to repent more deeply before you, and that Jesus might more easily capture the desires of our hearts. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at these words from the Apostle Paul, this ancient um, enemy of Jesus and his people turned to be one of the most famous proclaimers of the message of Jesus. And so he's writing to these followers of Jesus living in the ancient Roman Empire. And this is what he says. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Whenever we bring up this issue of wrath, someone says, wait just a minute. I don't like this. And this is actually one of the biggest issues I have with Christianity and its message. You see, the God that I believe in is a God who is loving. He's not wrathful. Many of us can sympathize with that at least initial instinct. We don't like people running around telling us that the wrath of God is upon us if we don't ship up. And so, what do we do with this concept? And I think most people, if we give it two seconds thought, will understand why God has to be wrathful. You just think about the news that you see from time to time. You hear something that happens, and you just boil with rage. It just makes you mad. If you have that kind of response to something that's horrible, why can't God if he loves people infinitely more than you and I have the ability to do, he sees his people being hurt, why shouldn't God have anger about that issue? The Apostle Paul tells us he does. He says it's revealed against people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And what happens is that when that happens, we begin relating to one another wrongly. In fact, that's a diagnosis of exactly what goes wrong in this world. People take advantage of one another, use one another, cheat one another. This is unrighteousness. And so Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to, him, to them. In other words, God is making plain his existence to people, and he's showing it to them. And their lives ought to fall in line with that, but it doesn't happen. He goes on in verse 20 and says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Paul says we understand this at a gut level. It's almost instinctual, our understanding of the existence of God. Just like we understand looking at a, a beautiful piece of art that there is an artist behind it. We don't have to be convinced of that. Or we look at a, a beautiful building and understand there is an architect and builder behind it. So when we look at creation, we understand, we intuit that there is a creator behind it all. The psalmist put it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Here the psalmist in Psalm 19 tells us this universe is constantly telling us (laughs) without words about the glory of God. And we should have a response to that. But what Paul tells us here is that people suppress the appropriate response to the existence of God. Think of Lawrence Krauss, the professor, or former professor at Florida State University. He's one of the celebrities, or we might say idols of the new atheist movement. And he says, he's actually not an atheist. He describes himself as something else. He said, what I can claim definitively is that I wouldn't want to live in a universe with a God. That makes me an anti-theist. He's not simply saying, I I don't think there's enough evidence to believe in the existence of God. He speaks in the terms of desires, of wants. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to be in a universe with a creator. And that makes me, he says, an anti-theist. And so Paul tells us that people are without excuse. You and I are without excuse. If this universe screams to us the existence of God, his divine nature, his incredible power, and we don't bring our lies before this God, the Bible tells us we're suppressing the truth. I remember when I was a teenager, one of my friends had a swimming pool. And one of the games that we would play is we would take a basketball and we'd press it underneath the water and we try to stand on it and maintain balance on it. And as you can imagine, inevitably, that shoots back up through the water. You can't suppress that for very long. In like manner, we know of God's existence. It's something that we intuit, and yet we suppress that. And it breaks through all the time. Paul goes on to say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts became darkened. Here Paul says, (laughs) diagnosing fallen humanity, that we know God exists, but by nature we do not honor him. We do not think to give thanks to him. And so we become futile in our thinking. That is, our minds don't work to lead us to God like they should. Our hearts become darkened. Paul will use this language elsewhere in the book of Ephesus, or Ephesians. He's writing to Christians living in Ephesus. He said this, Now this I say and testify to the Lord, I'm sorry, in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the nations do in the futility of their minds. As Paul looks at the nations, he sees the nations enslaved in a certain way of thinking. Their thinking doesn't lead them to the creator. 
He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. The ignorance is in them not due to a lack of evidence, but to a hard heart. So Paul, back in Romans, continues, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, that's a key word, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see what Paul says people do? They exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of creation. Instead of worshiping the one to whom all glory and honor is due, the one responsible for life, instead we take that, that glory, that honor, and we apply it to something within creation. So let's come up with a working definition of idolatry. An idol is anything that we substitute for God. If God should be at the very center of our lives, an idol is something that takes that center stage. A number of years ago, I came across this great read. It's simply called Open by Andre Agassi. Now, some of you may know Andre Agassi as the tennis star, who by the age of 25 won his first Wimbledon, became the number one ranked tennis player in the world. And I just confess, I'm not a huge tennis fan. I like to watch Wimbledon when it comes on, but I don't follow the athletes like I do in other sports. And someone recommended this book to me. He said it was one of the best autobiographies they ever read. So I'm like, all right, I've got to check it out. And he captured me from page one when he confessed that he hates tennis. I was like, how does a man who has devoted his life to this sport end up hating it? And so I just kept reading page after page. And at one point, he talks about this event that he won at Wimbledon, becoming the number one ranked player in the world. And so his phone, of course, lights up. And he tells us this. The next person who phones is a reporter. I tell him that I'm happy about the ranking, that it feels good to be the best that I can be. It's a lie. It isn't at all what I feel. It's what I want to feel. It's what I expected to feel, what I tell myself to feel. But in fact, I feel nothing. He continues and says, I spend many hours roaming the streets of Palermo, drinking strong black coffee, wondering what the hell is wrong with me. I did it. I'm the number one tennis player on earth. And yet, I feel empty. If being number one feels empty, unsatisfying, what's the point? That's a, an amazing moment of honesty and openness from this tennis star who at age 25 had everything he wanted, achieved all his goals, and yet was left empty. Richard Keyes in an essay called The Idol Factory said this, Idolatry begins with count the counterfeiting of God. Something within creation will then be idolatrously inflated to fill the God-shaped hole in the individual's world. Idolatry begins when we manufacture something else, when we counterfeit God with something else 
and give our life and attention and devotion to it. We try to fill that God-shaped void in our life with something, anything. Jeremy Treat in his book, Seek First, put it like this. Sin is not only rebellion against God, it is a replacement of God. An idol is anything you worship or live for in the place of God. It is whatever sits on the throne of your heart, ruling your life and directing your desires, dreams, and decisions. That was so helpful for me to understand that. When it finally clicked in my head, sin is not simply a rebellion against God. It's replacing God with something else in my life. So Paul tells us, Therefore God gave them up, or gave them over, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Remember, we're asking the question about what does it mean to have a pure heart. Jesus says, the pure in heart will see God. God gave them up, or gave them over, to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, and here's the reason, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. My friends, here's the key thought. This is so crucial for us to get. When we don't worship God, we don't stop worshipping. Rather, we will worship anything and everything. You and I are natural-born worshipers. We're meant to give our lives to something, our hearts to something. Something is meant to occupy the center of our lives. And when that's not our creator God, made known to us in Jesus, it will be something else. We don't stop worshiping. Rather, we will worship anything and everything. The reformer of Geneva, John Calvin, had a very insightful comment. And he said, every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. He goes on and says, the human heart is a factory, I should say a factory of idols. Isn't that an interesting comment? I remember when I first started reading Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion and I came across this comment, I was blown away. I had this image of of just heart within me opening up and a conveyor belt coming out of my heart, the deepest part of me, churning out one thing to worship after another, if what Calvin said is true. When I lived in Calgary, I met this artist by the name of Douglas Williamson, and he had this incredible piece of art of The human heart, and of course the human heart, biblically speaking, is just the center of our being, out of which all the issues of life come. But he takes this picture of a human heart, and he has uh, filth pumping out of it like an old factory. And out of it comes this conveyor belt. And on it he has things like science and religion and comfort and art and music. And he has this Calgary Flames hockey mask. We could probably, in our own context, replace that with an Aggie football helmet. Wouldn't you agree? Thanks for the laugh and not throwing tomatoes at me or anything like that. But this is what Calvin says our human hearts are like. We just turn out one thing after another to worship, to give our lives to, to set our affections upon, 
to tell us, give us life, give us meaning, give us significance, make me happy. What's important for us to see, my friends, is that even a good thing can become a God thing. An ultimate thing, that is. And when that happens, the shift is subtle, but spiritually dangerous. The people in ancient Israel, we heard earlier in our service from the time of Jeremiah, exchanged their God to worship other things. My friends, we're not immune to that either. We can say we believe in God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Our worship is due to this one God alone. We can say that with our mouths, and yet the affections of our heart are really captured by something else. And so we said last week, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. I think we can add to that now this week. The problem of the heart is the idolatry of the heart. And the idolatry of the heart is the sin behind every sin. Let me read through that again. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And the problem of the heart is the idolatry of the heart. And the idolatry of the heart is the sin behind every sin. And so let me apply this to our lives the best I can in just a a few quick points. The first one is this. Let's learn to see the idols of our hearts by asking, what do I want? If it's true that we are ultimately made for God and there's this God-shaped hole in our hearts that can only be filled by God, then let's ask the question, what are those things that we want that we try to fill that God-shaped hole in our lives with? And some great diagnostic questions are these. What do you love? Or what do you hate? What do you want, desire, crave, lust for, wish for? What do you fear? What is your worst nightmare? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? Whom must you please? Whose opinion counts? What do you see as your rights? What do you feel entitled to? My friends, each one of these questions tries to get at our heart at a different avenue. Last Sunday after church, my wife and I went to lunch, and we were trying to process um, the death of one of her high school friends who lives here in the city. He died from complications with COVID, and uh, we found that out Saturday night, and um, we didn't really have a chance to talk about it as I was getting my game face on, as I say, for Sunday morning and trying to get ready for that. But we went out to have lunch afterwards, and we just kind of processed this death, and we just mourned for his wife and children that are left behind, and our hearts just went out to them. And I told my wife in the midst of um, this conversation, we both had tears in our eyes, and we are just imagining what would happen if that hit our home like that. And I told her, I was like, it's not that I, I can't live without you, it's that I don't want to. And, and I say that because I love my wife more than any other person in the world. I love all of you, I love my church, I love my family, but I love my wife more than anyone in this world. And with that comes the potential of me turning my wife into a God, of me demanding of her to be God to me. 
And so it's a constant thing I have to ask myself. As the thing I love most in this life, the person I love most, Heather, taking God's place in my life. Another question we could ask is the one Ms. Rousey asked. What am I anymore if not this? What am I anymore if I can't be the husband to Heather? What am I anymore if I can't be the pastor of this church? What am I anymore if I lose everything I have? These are ways of getting at what owns my heart, what drives me, those things that can take center stage in my life, even while I confess to be a follower of Jesus and a worshiper of the Creator. Some of you may remember the interview that Madonna gave not too long ago. In that, she had this moment of honesty like Andre Agassi did. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Madonna, you're you're wildly successful. How is it that you feel a horrible feeling of inadequacy? She says, I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get, another to, I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. And my struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. You can use this lady, Madonna, as an example. Ask, what is your greatest fear? She says, it's this feeling of being mediocre, of not being special, and that's always driving me. It's always pushing me. And you see in this example of what has center stage in her life. Think of what the Apostle Paul said. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So really one of the good tools we can have in our lives at any time is to ask the question, what do I want? What's driving me? What is it that I fear? Second point of application is this. Let's learn to see the idols of our hearts by asking, what am I trusting in to be my functional Savior? Many of you, no doubt, say that Jesus is my Savior. And that's a glorious confession. But are there other things that you look to? Maybe in times of of loneliness or, or sadness or fear, did you pull out to provide you meaning and security in that moment. This would be a functional savior. The prophet Ezekiel talked about the people at his time, he talked about Israelites who would set up idols in their hearts. They're not carving statues out there to worship. They're erecting things within their heart to worship. And so let's just ask this question. What are the things that we can give ourselves to? They can be anything from success to approval to political parties, to religion, to family. Anything can take up center stage in our life. And we ask for these things to be our functional Savior. 
Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is an excellent book. I'd encourage you to, to pick that up if you want to explore this topic more. He said, an idol is a functional savior. We do lie, I'm sorry, why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful. But the specific answer to, is that there is something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy, something that is more important to our heart than God, something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change and to self-understanding, he says, is therefore to identify the idols of the heart. He says, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what, what will replace your counterfeit gods. A counterfeit god is a functional savior. Let me tell you about a time when I asked a Snickers candy bar to be my functional savior. We were living in Calgary, and it was one of those just pressure-packed weeks that I had, and it was middle of winter, and it was just treacherous getting home. You can imagine last week, but that in spades. And I, I got home. I was tired and I was exhausted, and, and Heather met me, and she asked me if I could run to Walmart, which is only five minutes away because we needed this one thing. And I don't remember what that one thing was, but I just took a breath and walked out and got back in my car, slammed the door, um, driving way too dangerously for the conditions that are present. I finally arrive at Walmart. I get out. I slam my door. I'm sitting there murmuring under my breath. I'm probably saying some things that I shouldn't be saying. And all of a sudden, I hear someone say, Hey, Pastor John. <laughs> my pity party was interrupted there, and this young Asian man who worked at Walmart that I had been uh, developing this friendship with, I sometimes would go there, and we would hang out and, and have a Coke and, and talk about life, and he was a young believer. And so... All of a sudden, I'm, I'm sitting there being um, revealed in my own heart for what's going on here, not, not believing what I say I believe at that moment. And so we chit-chat for just a little bit, and I go pick up whatever it was that Heather wanted me to get at that moment, and then I come and I get back in the car. But I didn't get in the car without buying a Snickers bar. In fact, I think I remember buying two just to have a backup in case I needed that Snickers bar later on. And I sat there, and I unwrapped that Snickers bar, and as I was about to take a bite, I heard this voice. It wasn't audible, but I heard this voice in my head saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was sitting there, having erected this Snickers bar in my heart, asking it to be in that moment my functional Savior from the stress of life. It's so easy to do. It's so subtle. But here's the thing. Whatever we ask to be our functional savior ends up enslaving us. They never die for us. They never liberate us. They just say one more bite, or one more act of devotion, a little bit extra at the office. Keep going, keep being more, keep doing more. But here's the thing. There is one person who has died for us. 
there's this great exchange. We make this great exchange of taking the one true God, taking him out of the center of our life and putting something else there. There's another great exchange where Jesus, in dying on the cross, took all of our sin and all of these propensities we have to worship anything and everything but the creator. And there he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. My friends, we can do this at any moment. What I needed most when I was tempted to take that Snickers bar and worship it was to be reminded that Jesus is entirely for me, that he has rescued me, he has, he has freed me from asking creation to be what it can never be so that I might set my affections back on my creator so that he can be all that he has promised to be for me in Christ Jesus. So here's the last point of application. Let's enthrone Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives every single day. And I want to stress, my friends, this is something that we ought to be doing every single day. It doesn't do to just do this on Sundays or or maybe every once in a while. You see, when you and I wake up in the morning, everything rushes at us. Our work asks us to worship it. Our family has needs, ask us to worship it. There's a million and one things that we can give the desires to, of our hearts to the moment we wake up. And in a sense, we've got to push all that back. And we've got to carve out space and say, Jesus, this day I will serve you as my Lord and King. You are my Savior. You gave yourself for me. Therefore, I will live for you. I refuse to be enslaved to anything else or to put anything else at the center of my life but you. My friends, let's do that every single day. As Bob Dylan says, you've got to serve somebody. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're going to serve someone. Something or somebody is going to be at the very center of your life. Will it be your creator? The reason why this is important, as my seminary professor Knox Chamlin said, Jesus is the only one who can rule you without ruining you. He's the only one who can rule you without ruining you. We make poor saviors of ourselves. The Apostle John, at the end of his letter, said, speaking of Jesus, he is the true God in eternal life. And then he wrote this to his readers. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that idolatry does not have a toe in your life. So set before yourself the one true God. Enthrone Jesus in your life every single day. And let's keep ourselves from idols. Friends, he's worth it. The Apostle Paul would say, he's worth it because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let me ask you, my friends, what are you if not this? What are you at the core of your being? If Jesus Christ has not made you his own, what if we lived out of this truth? What if every single day we woke up and the thought that came rushing in upon us is that God, by his grace in Jesus, has made me his very own? Friends, may Jesus reign supreme in your hearts, both this day and every single day of your life.